How do you imagine retirement? For retirement, I want to go to an island in the middle of nowhere and live in a mountain. I want to be in touch with the local people and not really partake in society as a whole. Manny Faria is the Stanford student we interviewed on the first episode of the season. When I was Manny's age, I didn't think a lot about retirement. But when I did, it didn't involve a mountain or isolation, but involved lots of leisure and not a whole lot of work. And that's pretty typical. A recent AIG Life and Retirement survey found that while most young adults are enthusiastic about living longer, they're far less enthusiastic about adding 10 additional years to their working lives, which will be the reality for many of them. But views about work change over time. And what I found in my conversations with older adults over the course of making this podcast is that many of us actually don't want retirement to be a complete break from the working world. Take psychology professor David Bluestein. And I'm actually on a sabbatical now, so in some ways I'm on a, it's kind of field testing what it would be like to be retired. I've come out of it thinking that I'm not quite ready to retire. Some of us, like the venture capitalist Alan Patrikoff, just want to keep working well beyond when many of us might expect to live. Primetime is my third startup. You know, and I started actually at age 85. I started my second one at 72. So what's going on here? It turns out that some of us actually like to work. Don't get me wrong. There have been plenty of days that I would have gladly traded in my work for Manny's mountaintop. But as I've gotten older, I've come to the realization that work is part of a critical balance in life. In that, I've been far from alone. Here's economic historian and social theorist Aaron Beninoff, who studied the question of why we work. I used to be part of a camp of people. I don't know if you've had anyone like this on your show who is kind of an anti-work person. You know, I was like, work is bad. Let's reduce work as much as possible and have more time for pleasure and, and free time. But then during the pandemic, he was conducting research that explored the question of why we work, which eventually led him to another question. What makes work enjoyable? There are three things that a lot of people stress. One is people like their work when they have a lot of autonomy. So they have a lot of freedom in determining how they carry out their work. Another thing is the mastery of skills, you know, that, that you actually know how to do something. You feel really competent in something. And the third is that your work has a meaning and purpose. Beninov realized something. His own work met these conditions. And to his surprise, he actually liked what he was doing. And I was sitting there working on this book and I was like, you know what? I'm an incredibly lucky person. I have a lot of freedom to write this book. I've spent 15 years learning how to write and research economic questions. And I think this book is really important. It just made me kind of reevaluate these earlier anti-work positions I'd had. Work for many of us plays a stabilizing role in life. It allows us to care for ourselves, our families, and our communities. And as we live longer, the hope is that we find fulfilling work that makes us want to keep at it. The idea that, you know, you should work, 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 and then spend 20 years of your life where you're just expected to kind of enjoy yourself in old age, that might last quite a long time. You know, those things might not work economically, and they might not be enjoyable or like a meaningful life path for people in an age of greater longevity. The length of life is a good way to ask questions about the meaning of life, right, and the purpose of life. 
And that's exactly what we're going to do on today's episode. Look at the role that meaningful work has played in the lives of older adults. What does meaningful work look like? And how can more of us discover our sense of purpose even as we work longer? From the Stanford Center on Longevity, Century Lives is here to start the conversation. I'm your host, Ken Stern. On this season of the podcast, we're exploring the 60-year career, what we want out of work, and what it means to have more meaningful careers over a longer lifespan. For some, like psychologist David Bluestein, the question of meaning begins with redefining our definition of work. I think what's going to happen as we think about longevity is, will people always need to have paid work? My personal view is that people strive to engage in meaningful projects. And the projects may or may not be uh, in the marketplace, in the paid marketplace. In Bluestein's field, there's a distinction between marketplace work and unpaid work, which often takes the form of caring for others, either for people in our immediate families or extended communities. But Bluestein believes that it would be in the best interest of our society if we considered both options under the same umbrella. I think we need to think about more broadly about how do you experience dignity and mattering in life above and beyond the paid marketplace. While not everyone can step out of the marketplace because of their income level, resources, and support, it can be powerful for those who have that option. We spoke with someone who found her most meaningful work later in life. I'm Frisch Brandt. I'm 67 years young. Brandt's journey began in her 20s as she was trying to figure out her career. She didn't know it at the time, but the skills she was developing would eventually serve her many years later. I started with an interest in art, and I had hoped to be an artist, but that became clear fairly early that I wasn't. But I did develop a skill early on that was very useful, that I knew would be useful, which is that I type very fast. I type the way people type when they pretend they're typing, is what my son says. So I just thought, I need to support myself. I need to be able to do something. Ultimately, I did typesetting for various publications. And one day, I was hungry to get involved, to come back to the arts. And circumstances and chance lined up. And I walked into an interview at the Imaging Cunningham Trust, which Imogene Cunningham was an important photographer in California. How are you? It's such a great pleasure to meet you. It really That's Johnny Carson on The Tonight Show, interviewing Imogene Cunningham in 1976, the same year she died. I worked for Vanity Fair. Vanity Fair magazine. And they sent you on an assignment to take pictures of... Ugly men. Ugly men. And I did Cary Grant. Did you consider him an ugly man? No, he convinced me that he wasn't. (laughs) And um, I walked into the trusts and basically started working that very day. I really had a choice, as many people do. I had been offered a better-paying job typesetting, but I thought it was a Robert Frost moment, and I took the path less traveled. Brandt was in her 20s at the time. The path felt risky. As she recalls, photography was considered by some to be a lesser art form when she entered the field. But it seemed so interesting. Photography was really the medium of my generation. And that's where it began. Brandt eventually went to work at the Frankel Gallery, 
a premier photography gallery in San Francisco. She loved the work and spent the next few decades working with artists, curators, and collectors. Then around the time she turned 50, she opened the New York Times and read an article about palliative care, care for people with serious illnesses. I still get goosebumps. I always do. I knew that that was the conversation I wanted to be in. I love the conversations I have about art, but they're often about life and about death and about love and about meaning and about relationship. When I read about palliative care, I thought that's, that is the ultimate conversation. What does this life mean? What do I want? What makes a good day? Where do I draw the line? How do I say goodbye? How do I say I love you? How do I say thank you? How do I say, please forgive me? I forgive you. But when I read about palliative care, I thought, well, what do I do? I mean, I'm not going to go to med school. So how do I get involved in that conversation? Brandt began reaching out to doctors. She didn't really know what to offer except her typing skills. Not much happened with these conversations, and several years passed. One day, literally, sitting in the sun at a photography event, it came to me. And I thought, as if a transmission, I can help people write letters. But I didn't know what it meant. But I knew that I believe in the importance of the contemporaneous note. That is what photography is. And I just knew that I could midwife those letters. Brandt began searching for opportunities to put this idea into action. Then she had a conversation with a local palliative care doctor. And about three weeks later, she called me up and she said, 37-year-old mother of two boys on her third set of lungs dying of cystic fibrosis. Are you interested? I remember distinctly parking my car. It was in Pacifica, which is right along the coast, a beautiful view of the coast. Pulled up, grabbed my laptop out of the car, and I walked in and we just did it. She didn't know it was the first letter. Uh, She was a bird-like person at that point on oxygen. She had done her makeup for our visit. She sat curled up on her bed and was completely present to the conversation. And that was the first letter I wrote. Brandt still has the letter. To respect the privacy of the family, we won't be reading it. But Brandt remembers the contents well. She wrote to her two boys. She had a message that she wanted to deliver. It was very clear. She knew exactly what she wanted to say. She felt that kindness was the most important thing and that when she wasn't here anymore, to remind them that she wanted them to be sure to turn to kindness. The world would challenge them, that they would meet people that had different opinions, but when the metal hit the road or whatever, that she she hoped they would remember her and remember kindness. Brandt has since worked with hundreds of people to write what she calls lasting letters. So the process is this. We talk, and I type everything the person says. Everything. And I'm also typing notes to myself. And then I go home and look at it and tease it out and find the through line. And I pull it back together in the shape with the order that I think is intended. And it's their letter. Uh, We work on it like clay. We go back and forth. Once they have a final draft, they decide when to send the letter. The mother who wrote to her two sons, for example, opted to delay the delivery. 
just when a parent dies in this case, in this instance, the grief is so huge at the beginning that to add the letter to that grief will make that letter always carry that aura of the grief. But if it waits for a year or two, and then they can hear their parent's voice again in that way, sometimes it should wait. Bryant refers to herself as a letter midwife. She offers her services of lasting letters to those who contact her online and by referral. The gallery remains her marketplace work, but she considers her letter work to be her life's work. My friend Lael says, my first calling came second. And I think she's right. Work is where we practice who we are. And I think the people that you come in contact with, you know when they're practicing who they are. If she wasn't busy enough, she's also a Distinguished Career Institute Fellow at Stanford. In the DCI program, late career professionals have the opportunity to return to school and renew their sense of purpose and career direction. Brandt is currently enrolled in a longevity class with students several decades younger, and she believes that her age is an asset. In longevity class, we were talking about um, if you could have 20 more years, which we have elongated the lifespan. If you got 20 years, where would you insert them in your life? And of course, most of the students, they've only lived to 25. So where are they going to insert it? It's somewhat abstract. And I said, I'm here to tell you, inserting it around your 40s or 50s is super great because you've figured out a whole bunch of stuff. And now you can really go with it. You can really expand on it. Finding meaningful work later in life, as Frisch Brandt has clearly done, is not always straightforward or intuitive. Some of us find our callings right away, while others benefit from more structured support. There's a great line from Joseph Campbell who, who said, midlife is when you get to the top of the ladder and discover it's leaning against the wrong wall. We've been helping people to try to navigate their way to the right wall. Luckily, people like Mark Friedman exist. Mark is the founder of Encore.org, a nonprofit that has been working for the past 20 years to change cultural expectations for the years beyond 50. It encourages older Americans to take up Encore careers a second act for the greater good. Friedman didn't get the idea for Encore right away. It all began with the Big Brother, Big Sister program, which supports young people growing up in poverty by pairing them with mentors. Friedman was involved in the first study of the program. The results amazed him. There was a 46% difference in kids using drugs, a 50% difference in school truancy. These kids' lives had been transformed, and yet at the same time, there was a long waiting list of young people who wanted to have this kind of support. And the problem was that they were looking mostly at adults in their 20s, 30s, 40s, who didn't have enough time to spend with their own kids, much less someone else's child. And so I got interested in where are the human beings who could do the things that only human beings could do. And even Three decades ago, it became clear that the older population should be a prime group of interest. America's population of those 65 plus is growing fast, faster than any other age group. Studies showed that all of the discretionary time in society was lodged in the older population. So from a perspective of time and numbers, I got interested in how older people could be a resource for the next generation. And created something called Experience Corps. 
When Friedman started Experience Corps, it was essentially a Peace Corps for older adults. But unlike the Peace Corps or other similar programs that target a younger demographic, Experience Corps members stuck around, sometimes for a decade or longer. So it became a second act for them. It might not have been as long as their midlife career, but it weighed as much. It was a significant. When they look back on their lives, it was the thing in many cases they were proudest of. And we realized that they, these Experience Corps members were having a body of work that was similar to a lot of famous people like Jimmy Carter, who left the presidency and then did his most important work afterwards. And we decided to put a name on that. And the name we put on it was an encore career, a second act for the greater good. And the benefit to older workers went beyond the workforce. Recent research from Hopkins Medical School shows that participation in Experience Corps actually reverses the preconditions of dementia. So this was a source of meaning and purpose, a reason to get up in the morning, uh, but also had great health benefits uh, in terms of people's mobility, and, uh, and the social connections of the program were enormous. And that squares with much of the research uh, since that time about the value of, of work and engagement and purpose in later life. Freud said the keys to life were love and work. And I think he was right. But it's not so easy for everyone to simply go back to school. An encore career may look a little different from the other end of the economic spectrum. According to the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, many of the people who leave the workforce for early retirement are blue-collar workers. People who work physically demanding jobs like construction or roofing or farming tend to be the most susceptible to losing work or needing to retire early. I asked Friedman about this. Can we uh, reflect on sort of the class element of, uh, of, of this? And you know, many of the things um, we've talked about today have the feel of sort of being the the refuge of the the edu- the well educated. So first, react to that and tell me if I'm wrong. And secondly, how do you think about you know the two thirds of Americans who don't have college degrees and how they should be thinking about their own careers as well? I think there's an inequality of opportunity to have a second act, a second act for the greater good, or a second act of of any uh, shape or, or form, and and much of that has to do with the lack of enlightened public policy in this arena, leaving people to their own devices to to figure this out, and oftentimes to pay their way out of the dilemma of getting from what's last to what's next in in work and in life. Uh, at that said, I, I think there are tremendous uh, opportunities and needs for Americans of all backgrounds to to move into an encore career or, or a new chapter with purpose at, at its core. And I've seen illustrations that you know point out the way. One of my favorite is the Troops to Teachers program, which gave a second chance for higher education for many uh, retiring um military personnel, uh, most of them military personnel of color, and helped solve the teacher shortage in the country, or at least presented a potential solution. And so I think some of these measures that help people get retrained in this period of life, that help them go back to school, um, would go a long way towards um, realizing the potential of, of this longevity revolution. I am now probably in that key demographic of people who, who are 
um, eligible to start thinking about their Encore careers um, since I'm 58. You know, one of the things about uh, the three-stage life, it was pretty darn clear what your what the expectations were and, you know, there were tools and social pressures about what you should do. Um, it's less clear to me uh, as I think about 65 um, or whatever the right age is, what, what the norms are and should be uh, and where do I go to to figure it out. What, what would you say to me, a, a man desperately in, in need of guidance? Well, you know, I think that the most important dimension to think about as you contemplate what's next is, is the question of time. First of all, to recognize that you have a, a lot of time ahead, most likely, at least if according to the actuarial tables. And so it's worth investing time to figure out what's the best fit. Young people, we give them four years of college in many cases, graduate school in addition to that. And so we shouldn't expect to figure this all out in, in a few weeks uh, or even necessarily a few months. And so I think it's important to actually save money uh, to give ourselves enough time to do exploration. And I think the key on the exploration is being experiential. It's actually through trying before we buy, which is why internships and, and those kinds of explorations are, are so important. So I, I would say to, um, to accept that it's hard to know after working long hours and raising families and doing all the things that consume midnight, midlife, what's gonna be the best fit for the next period. That's gonna take some time in the 20 years since Friedman began this work, Encore.org's scope has broadened. One of the primary ways it supports older adults is through fellowship programs, which allows them to draw on their life experiences and find meaningful ways to contribute to society. We spoke with someone in one of those programs. I am Sandra Harris. I am currently a 2021-22 Encore uh, Innovation Fellow. So what is an Encore Innovation Fellow? Um, it provides a space for um, intergenerational space where people from all walks of life, all age groups are allowed to come together and um, they help us to identify, promote, develop a program, an opportunity for after developing it to um, actually pitch it for funding. Harris is 71. She spent decades running an interior design firm that specialized in creating healthy spaces for older adults. She's also worked in higher education surrounded by college students. She's passionate about both age groups and sees tremendous value in bringing them together. You know, I've, I've always enjoyed older adults and young people, um, but then I began to feel that some level of um, friction between, you know, where do I land with older adults and younger people and I remember my first conversation with Encore and where I was introduced to the word of co-generation. And that really, really helped to settle in my mind how uh, we need to really not compete with each other, how we're all in this world together. This is our world, our society. So how do we come together and co-generate opportunities for longer, you know, more fulfilling lives. 
and Harris has a plan that she thinks would add tremendous value both for younger and older people. My idea is to create what we're calling a um, digital cafe or a digital uh, academy. I promote a co-generational approach to bridging the digital divide. I think it's very, very important to make sure that no one is left behind. Many young people who are digital natives and who are also looking for connections have an opportunity to work with older adults to develop the skill set and also to develop friendships. We're hoping to pilot three of them in three different communities throughout Massachusetts with the goal of providing a template that can be easily replicated not only in Massachusetts communities but in communities throughout the country. Harris finds tremendous meaning in her work, and she believes finding purpose in work is critical for others, especially later in life. I think it's critical. Um, it certainly has been critical to my life. Um, I am preparing for a high school class reunion, so I have been spending much time with people who graduated from high school with me, and I look at how different their lives are. You know, I remember asking a question once on one of our Zoom calls, well, for people who have retired, well, what do you do during the week? And they looked at each other and said, nothing. <laughs> and I said, well, what do you do on the weekend? And they looked at each other and said, nothing. And I, I think it's, it's absolutely critical to have a reason to get up every morning, to have a reason to do something. I get to speak to um, groups of older adults, and, and my word to them is, it's important that you embrace your wisdom, your experience, and to really remember that you have all of that still with you. And now is the time you know, to do all the things that you've perhaps wanted to, I thought about doing in life that you never did before. You know, Maybe it's time to write that book. Maybe it's time to um, tell your story. Maybe it's time to get involved, volunteer with your community. By the middle of the century, living to the age of 100 will become commonplace. It continues a remarkable trend that saw human life expectancies almost double between 1900 and 2000. This increase in life expectancy in just one century exceeds all of those in prior millennia of human evolution combined. It's a remarkable achievement, but it's happened so fast that many of our social norms, economic policies, and social institutions have lagged behind. Inevitably, our rules of society will change as we account for a longer life. Nowhere is that clearer than in the practices and policies that govern our work lives. The idea of longer careers is not an immediately attractive one. We started this season talking with young people, and with uncertain decades stretching ahead, it's not surprising that they were unenthusiastic about adding more years and more risk to their careers. And if you layer in an economy marked by increased precarity, declining job tenure, more work hours, and increased inequity, it makes Manny's mountaintop refuge sound surpassingly attractive. But it doesn't have to be that way. As we've heard throughout the season, we can design into careers that are longer, more purposeful, and more balanced. We can change the norms around work-life balance, lifelong learning and training opportunities, our understanding of age, and how we can continue to make contributions to our communities throughout our longer lives. If we do that, I bet Manny will be thinking differently about the rest of his longer and hopefully healthier and more productive life. The producers of Century Lives are Carrie Thompson, Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, and Cameron Chertavian. 
Music for this episode was provided by Ramtin Arablui and Audio Network. Archival audio from San Francisco, MoMA. Century Lives is a production of the Stanford Center on Longevity, where our mission is to support ideas and research so that century-long lives are healthy and rewarding ones. You can find out more about us at longevity.stanford.edu. Support for the Stanford Center on Longevity comes from the Annenberg Foundation, dedicated to addressing the critical issues of our time through innovation, community, compassion, and communication. Thanks for listening. I'm Ken Stern.